0: I invite you to open the Word of God with me to the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah chapter 32. So, just to give this a little bit of context, Jeremiah prophesied in the closing days of the kingdom of Judah. It refers to the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has his army outside of the gates. And Jeremiah knows that the city will fall. There's no way out anymore. And yet, as we read this chapter together, look at the promises that God makes. And look also at how Jeremiah interacts with that. Hear the word of God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah king of Judah shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say... Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, "Buy my field that is is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself." Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, and I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin. And I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Barak, the son of Nerea, son of Masaiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guide. I charged Barak in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Barak the son of Nereah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses. Though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set the city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose roof's offerings have been made to Baal And drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. "'Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind "'that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. "'Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'concerning the city of which you say, "'It is given into the hand of the king of Babylon "'by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. "'Behold, I will gather them from all the countries "'to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath "'and in great indignation. "'I will bring them back to this place, "'and I will make them dwell in safety.' And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land of in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Field shall be bought in this land of which you are saying, It is a desolation, without man or beast. It is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Field shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed. In the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah and in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. So far, our reading. Let us now also turn to Scripture as it is summarized for us in the confessions. This afternoon, we are dealing with what we confess as it is summarized. Concerning the Lord's Prayer, the beginning in Lord's Day 46, not 45. That was my mistake when I submitted the liturgy. It's Lord's Day 46 that we will read and consider this afternoon. Lord's Day 46, page 560. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of Him in faith and our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Why is there added in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner and to expect from His almighty power all things we need for body and soul. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon, two of our youth are professing their faith. This is undoubtedly a high point in their walk of faith. After many years of Christian home, school, and church, they are ready to publicly commit their lives to the Lord. They want to move on, so to speak. And that's good. It is good to take public responsibility for what you believe. At the same time, their professional faith this afternoon should not be seen as a kind of a graduation ceremony. You could argue that there is a way in which we should never move on. If by moving on you mean to take public responsibility for what you believe, then yes, by all means, do that. It's time to move on. But if you mean outgrow our childlike faith, then no. There are aspects of our faith that we should never outgrow. Today, we continue the section in the Catechism on the Lord's Prayer. And the Catechism draws our attention to the opening words of this prayer. It asks the question, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? And it answers that question by saying, to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer, that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. So there is a sense in which we are always to remain childlike in our prayer. And if that childlike attitude is to be awakened at the very beginning of our prayer, then should it not also permeate the rest of our life as well? So this afternoon we will consider the call to never outgrow your childlike reverence and trust toward God. And we'll consider His great faithfulness and consider His great majesty. So, what does a catechism mean when it refers to this childlike reverence and trust? If you think about it, there's a lot that children don't know. They don't have a deep knowledge of the facts. They don't have the ability to analyze a situation correctly. They aren't able to come to a well-considered conclusion. They're vulnerable to all sorts of influences. Those of us who are parents try to protect our children from harm as much as we can. And when we start letting go, we often do so reluctantly. So why then this focus on this word childlike? Well, there's one thing that children do better than anyone else, and that is to trust. Children are generally trusting by nature. They don't have the Cynicism, they don't have the hardness that characterizes so many adults. Early on, they learn to trust their parents and other caregivers in their lives, and they revere them. That is to say, they think very highly of their parents. Maybe they take home a drawing they made at school, and it shows dad conquering a monster. Or maybe... They draw a picture of their family, a row of smiling stick figures in green crayon with yellow hair, and they're in the middle of it. That's their world. That means everything to them. Now, that changes once you hit the teen years, doesn't it? As teenagers, you think you have it all figured out. You know you have to honor your parents, but you're, you don't always feel like they're all that switched on. But over time, you start to learn that your parents have wisdom. And as you hit your 20s, you you get past that immature way of thinking, and you start to appreciate them on a much deeper level. That's often how it goes. And the same process applies in your walk of faith. Kenton and Werner, you you both grew up in a Christian home. You were raised in the faith, as, as I imagine most of us here were. As children, you were taught about God, and in many ways you have this unconditional trust in God. But as you grow up, you start to see cause and effect in life. You start to see that a lot of your success or failure in life seems to depend on yourself and on your own choices, your own actions, and sometimes you can feel like you have it all figured out, and sometimes that can take away some of that childlike reverence and trust. However, as you mature in the faith, you grow past that. You learn to see that all of your actions and the consequences that come from those actions all take place in the much larger framework of God's providence. You learn to see that God is at work in this world, that He is living and active through His providence. You see His work. You learn to see, as it says in the Lord's Day 9, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs all things by his providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. And as you work that out, you start to understand what the catechism means when it refers to that childlike reverence and trust toward God. The catechism is suggesting that you should never outgrow your childlike reverence and trust toward God. That's different from how it goes with your parents. Because as you grow into adulthood, there comes a point in time when you and your parents will be equals. You're both adults. You still honor your father and your mother, but you are both equally adults. You're both equally church members. And at some point, if they become old enough, they will become childlike again, and you we'll have to look after them. You're the one making decisions for them and not the other way around. And that's where our relationship with God remains in a class of its own. He will always be infinitely above us. We will always be His children dependent on Him from moment to moment. And that's why we should never outgrow our childlike reverence and trust toward God. And by nature, we tend to forget that. The Catechism alludes to that forgetfulness when it says that we are to address God as our Father to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust, which should be basic to our prayer. We're quick to forget, and therefore we need to be awakened. We need to be constantly reminded. That's true for all of us, not just for Kenton and Werner. This is for all of us to awaken in us, it says. We need to relearn this childlike reverence and trust every day. We need to learn to consciously pray to our Father. Childlike reverence and trust is only possible when there is unconditional love. And that's true in human relationships as well. When children are not loved or when parental love is tied to their performance or to their achievements, they grow up feeling insecure Yet the catechism drawing on Scripture suggests that we can be confident of God's fatherly love in our lives. We don't need to be insecure with Him. Now, on what do we base that confidence? Not on ourselves, but on Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, there is no case that you can make for God's love. Apart from Him, there is no reason for God to remain faithful to us. And that becomes particularly clear in our reading from this afternoon from verse 17 onwards, if you follow along, I'm going to do a quick tour of the passage here. From verse 17 onwards, the prophet Jeremiah lays out what God has done. First, he acknowledges God's sovereignty as creator. God is the one who has created this world, and as we saw this morning, this, this world, in a sense, the universe is a, is a stage on which we... Live out the covenant relationship with God. God has created that world. So God is the creator. God is also the judge who calls all people to account for their actions. Shows that in verse 18. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children. And then Jeremiah acknowledges God's faithfulness specifically to his people. Starting in verse 20, he reviews the entire history up to that point. He remembers in verse 20 the signs and wonders done in the land of Egypt. That's a reference to the ten ten plagues, of course. Then in verse 21, he refers to the exodus, the bringing out your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders. That language, um, a strong hand and an outstretched arm. He brought them out with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That comes straight from the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. You find that phrase back there. And then in verse 22, he remembers how how God fulfilled his promises. And verse 23, how they entered the promised land, they conquered it under Joshua. So from God's side, he's been faithful from the beginning. He's kept his promises from the beginning. He's kept all of them. But the people, the people consistently disobeyed. In verse 23, Jeremiah says, They did nothing of all he commanded them to do. That little sentence contains 900 years worth of sin. 900 years worth of God's patience. They did did nothing of all that you commanded them to do. The people have failed in obedience. Not only that, but they failed in love. As God put it in verse 30, he says, For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but Provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. They have not loved the Lord their God. They have failed in the most basic of all commandments. And they have done this collectively with very few exceptions. Look at verse 32. He says, they have, verse 32, they have provoked me to anger their kings and their officials their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This includes everybody. You could argue that the people outgrew their sense of childlike reverence and trust toward God. And that really seems to be the recurring theme here. If we think of it in terms of the catechism, they outgrew their sense of childlike reverence and trust toward God. He refers to that in Hosea 11, verse 1 and 2, when he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And in verse 33 of our reading, he comes back to that when he says, They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. So you could argue they outgrew their sense of childlike reverence and trust toward God. So what happens when that sin, which is what it is, is left to grow unchecked? Well, the people fell back into the heathen religion of the Canaanites whom they had displaced, including the worship of one particular heathen god god called Molech. And God reminds them of that in verse 35 when he says, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. In other words, they offered up their own children as human sacrifices to a heathen God. That's what that refers to. They lost their childlike reverence and trust in God, and they offered up their own children as a human sacrifice to a heathen God. Now, when you read this, it seems so far removed from reality to us. This seems completely insane. How how could this even happen? How can this be a thing? How can anyone sink this low? But consider this to be evidence of what happens when people demand absolute control over their circumstances, because that's what this is about. See, the opposite of childlike trust is control. And they lost the childlike reverence and trust toward the true God. God. And then what you get instead is not a childlike reverence and trust toward another god, because that's not how heathens relate to their gods. Heathen religion is about control. And these sacrifices were a way of controlling and appeasing the heathen god. Their religion is about control. And that brings it a bit closer to home, doesn't it? We would never even think about sacrificing a child to Molech. But what are we willing to give up for the illusion of control? What have we given up in our pursuit for worldly success? Time that should have been spent with our family? Relationships with our loved ones? Relationships maybe with the church members around us? What have we all been willing to sacrifice in our single-minded pursuit of the things that we thought would make us happy? The things that we thought would help us to take control over our own life. What have you all given up on the altar of your ambition, your desire for control? What have you all given up for the things that you think make life worth living? And that's what happens when you forget to pray our Father, when you let go of that childlike reverence and trust. Now, what we have in our reading here is an extreme example of where these things lead, But they exist in all of us in an embryonic form, waiting to come out at the right time. And that makes it clear that there is nothing in our lives that makes us inherently worthy of God's fatherly love. That's why the Catechism goes on to preach the gospel to us. It says God has become our Father through Jesus Christ. That is not just a theological statement of fact. That is the very reason for our existence His love cannot make sense in any other way. There was nothing God's people did in the past to deserve it. There is nothing that we can do or have done to deserve it today. It is all God's faithfulness to us on account of His own Son, Jesus Christ. As Lord's Day 13 says, Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption, through grace, for Christ's sake. Jesus is God's perfect Son, born as a true human being, lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father, never outgrew his childlike reverence and trust toward God, perfectly submissive at all times. Christ was born under the law, but unlike God's people before him, he kept it perfectly. And he did that so that God's people could receive the full right of adoption as sons The word sons is significant because in the culture of those days, the son was usually the heir. So Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And by using that word, what it means is that through Christ, we are all heirs of God's blessings. All of his blessings. And the ultimate blessing is the presence of God himself. As the catechism puts it, God has become our Father through Jesus Christ. This is the blessing. This is it. And then the catechism goes on to say that God will much less deny us what we ask of Him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. What does that mean? Well, given what we've seen so far, it definitely does not mean that He will give us everything that we ask for. There are some strains of theology here that teach as long as you have enough faith, God will give you whatever you want. If you didn't get it, it was because you didn't have enough faith. But that's not true. Of course God won't give us everything that we ask for. No parent would. Why not? Because children don't have the maturity to ask for the right things. But as they learn to trust their parents, they also learn to trust the wisdom and judgment of their parents. So when the catechism refers to faith here, it's not referring to faith in faith. That is, faith that if we just believe hard enough, we can get whatever we want. If that were the case, it wouldn't respect God's authority as Father, and it would fall back into that whole sphere of control, which is so characteristic of heathen religions. Instead, you need to look at where the catechism is getting this idea from. And if you look at that, in lords day 46 if you look at the footnote at the end of that line refuse us earthly things it points to luke 11 the verses 11 through 13 and if you look that up it says if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will the heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask him in other words you're evil by nature you still give good gifts to your children god is perfect How can He give you anything less than the best? He'll give you the best gift of all, which is His Holy Spirit. True faith is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And when we have that Spirit, we will also trust in the faithfulness of God. We will learn to submit to His will, even when we cannot understand it. After all, He is different from us. We have considered His great faithfulness. Let us now also consider His great majesty. In the second question and answer of Lord's Day 46, it says our focus is to be on God, not just as our Father, but as our Father in heaven. And then it goes on to say these words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner, but to expect from His almighty power all things that we need for body and soul. So what does it mean to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner? It means, in part, to understand that God has the final say. When it comes to matters of faith, Scripture invites us to think God's thoughts after Him. Our Lord Jesus taught us, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. So, Christianity is a thinking religion. Scripture is full of treasures waiting to be discovered, and they can be discovered. Through faith we can understand many things, but there are things that we cannot understand and we never will. And we need to have peace with that. See, if we only have faith in God insofar as we can understand what He's doing, then it stops being faith, right? God's actions are not subject to our reasoning, not subject to our predictions. And sometimes wanting to understand something completely can be, again, a disguised craving for control. We need to have reasons for everything before we can have peace with it. But if that's how we think, we stop acting as children. And one example of how this plays out is again in a reading from this afternoon. Jeremiah refers to the Chaldeans, which is another word for the Babylonians. They're at the gates. And the Lord Promises they will eventually take the city. And then in the middle of all of this misery, the Lord tells Jeremiah to go and buy a field from his cousin. Jeremiah obeys, but he's completely bewildered. And after his lengthy prayer where he reviews the, the faithlessness of the people, he, he concludes in verse 25 by saying, Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. He's totally bewildered, probably very discouraged. He's imprisoned in the city, and the city itself is surrounded by the enemy. So Jeremiah, as a person, is doubly imprisoned. His circumstances seem hopeless on a personal as well as on a national level. God has already told him he's going to destroy the city. And now how can he ask Jeremiah to invest in real estate? So Jeremiah's question to the Lord is a way of thinking of His heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. And that is why the Lord gently rebukes him. And look at verse 27. This is really interesting. He rebukes him using the exact same words that Jeremiah himself used earlier. He says, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Which is exactly what Jeremiah said in verse 17 where he says, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So God is reminding his prophet here not to think of his heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. God has much greater plans than what can be seen here in the moment. He's already looking past the disaster of the exile to the future, to the day when he will gather his people back again. And he promises not to give up on them, but to gather the survivors and to preserve them. He says in verse 37, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And he goes on to say in verse 43, Fields, 44, Fields shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed. Fields shall be bought in this land. Now, the promise of fields is not just real estate, the promise of real estate. It is not just a physical thing. We've seen this before here. It has spiritual implications. Remember, to have a share in the promised land means to have a share in God Himself, in fellowship with God Himself. The promised land was the only place in the whole world where you could actually physically go and meet with God at the temple. And worship him. So, when God promises that his people will buy fields again, he's assuring them they will still have a share in him. And that's why he's asking Jeremiah to buy this field. It is, it is a visual parable, so to speak, it's a physical reminder of his grace. There is something almost sacramental about that. We need that grace. The Catechism says we are to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. There's no one else we can expect that from. And our passage makes that very clear. God knows that his people cannot stand by their own faith, cannot stand by their own power, so he will need to gather them himself. And to show that it is entirely his work, he will do so after their destruction, when there is no human way that they can ever pull themselves together anymore. And not only will God do this, but he will do it with love, not grudgingly. Look at verse 41. He says, I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. 41, he says, I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. That's an incredible thing if you think about who he's talking to here. He's committed to his people forever. And so we can expect from his almighty power all things that we need for body and soul, as the catechism puts it. We can count on him for everything. And the phrase body and soul also echoes Lord's Day 1. Remember? I think we talked about this in catechism at some point. Yeah, you remember? Body and soul, that phrase, echoes Lord's Day 1. We find it back in other places in the catechism. And Lord's Day 1, of course, says that I am not my own, but belong both in body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, God is so committed to His people because of Christ. It's only when the guilt is taken away forever in Christ and they're sanctified by His blood that God can indwell them with His Holy Spirit. So what we find in this phrase, body and soul, is for us an unconscious echo of the reality of Christ's incarnation. He took on a human body and soul as well. As a Belgian confession, Article 18 reminds us, since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that He should assume both to save both. Christ is a complete Savior and that is why we are to expect from God's almighty power and God's almighty power alone all things that we need for body and soul. And that gives us courage and hope when we face our own eventual suffering and death because it will be a time when our own body and soul will be consumed as well. There will be a time when no prayer will bring healing, when no plea will prevent death. But at that time, we will know God as Father most completely. At that very moment of our death, when we're the most vulnerable, we will also see the most clearly that we can expect from His almighty power all things we need for body and soul. By the very power, He raised Christ from the dead. By the very power, He will raise us from the dead. By the very power, He has given us one heart and one way, as it says in verse 40. And by the very power, He continues working through the generations even when our time here is over. And that is why Kenton and Werner are here. It's the same power. So yes, as the form says, we thank the Lord our God for the grace given us by adopting us to be His children and receiving us into His covenant. We acknowledge His love and power by which He instills in His children the desire publicly to profess their faith in Him in the presence of his holy church, so that they might receive admission to the Holy Supper. But when you profess that faith, understand, Kenton and Werner, this is only the beginning. Consider his great faithfulness. Consider his great majesty. And may you never outgrow your childlike reverence and trust toward God. Amen.